Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 153. Uh, special thanks to uh, Robert, who is here for the last episode about Lenny Abramson's room. And in keeping with, uh, it turned into a little uh, series, a little mini-series, in which we're talking about uh, Oscar nominees. So uh, Room was nominated for a number of uh, Oscars this year, and it will likely win at least one for Best Actress. That's not a guarantee, but it's very likely. Um, Today we're going to be talking about Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, which is nominated for a number of Oscars, which I will get to in a moment. But first, there's a few announcements. Um... So if you go to morethanonelesson.com, you will find uh, some articles, one written by me about uh, just some personal stuff that I've been thinking about and praying about in regards to my own uh, critical career, I guess you could say. Um, and the, the fact that I'm reluctant to even use the word career is probably indicative of something. Uh, but yeah, so the the article is called Just In Time. You can read that. Uh, it's uh, something I'm somewhat proud of, but at the very least it keeps you up to date on where I am, uh, in my, in my spiritual life in my professional life and, uh, the intersection of the two. Uh, and then also, uh, Reed wrote a review of the film Bone Tomahawk, which I've heard great things about, uh, but I have not yet seen. And so, uh, Reed, I believe is something of a Western fan. So, uh, give that a read. Uh, and then lastly, uh, and I've mentioned this before, but I want to try and mention it as, as often as I can. Uh, in April, I will be at the International Christian Film Festival. More than one lesson will have a table there, but then I will also be doing a 45-minute lecture called Speaking the Language of Film, which I'm very, very excited about and uh, a little bit nervous about as well, in which I'll just be talking about the, just the general elements of film, you know, writing, directing, acting, cinematography, editing, sound, all of the things that make up a film, and frankly, all the things that are usually overlooked, the or at least the importance of them uh, uh, is often overlooked when Christians make movies. And so uh, it'll be, so that's actually something you guys can be praying for me about, even though I have an, a general outline. Uh, it's always difficult to manage your tone and not get too condescending, not get too, you know, not feel too superior. Uh, these people invited me uh, to be a part of this. Uh, and they were, last year, they were very nice and very open to the things I had to say. So that is, so hopefully the lecture will go well. And or the uh, the seminar, I guess, is what it's called, will go well, and it's a, it can start a conversation between me and uh, the filmmakers, um, among other people uh, that will be uh, at the International Christian Film Festival. Alex Kendrick, the uh, writer director of Fireproof, Courageous, and War Room, War Room currently being my least favorite film of 2015, as tends to happen. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to meet Alex Kendrick. We'll see what happens. Stay tuned in April. Um, so yeah, some crazy stuff going on over there. Uh, so if you go to internationalcff.org, I believe, uh, I'm not exactly sure. I will link to it in the, in the uh, post for this episode. So you can just click on that and find out uh, the details about how to... Uh, how to attend the festival, which is in Orlando, by the way. Uh, all right. So thank you everybody for bearing with me, uh, with those announcements that has been this episode and good night.
I'm joking, of course. I will now welcome in your co-host and mine, but mostly mine, and even that is reluctant. It's Josh Long. Josh. Hi. How you doing? All right. All right. Yeah. When did you get that watch? Is that a new watch or no, newish? No, I've had it for a little while. Okay. I guess I don't see you with a watch that I, often. I don't wear it with short sleeves that often. Yeah. It's like you're trying to say, hey, world, look at me. Got places to be. Yeah. I do not, in fact, have places to be right now. It's like, well, I've got, I've got this board meeting to go to, you know, <laughs> being the head of a major company. You know. That kind of thing. Uh, but Did I, I do, tell you I'm now the head of a major company? You didn't mention it, but I, you know what? You didn't need to. I can't I took say one the, look at that watch, yeah. and I knew. I can't tell you the name of the company, but I'll, it rhymes with Tall Mart, so... <laughs> <laughs> it is of course Walmart. It is. Uh, it's. <laughs> I can neither confirm or deny, yeah. but everyone shop at Walmart. Yeah, they manufacture kickballs. Um, so, and it's, it's been very popular. Business is booming because <laughs> uh, it turns out people have a lot of aggression that yeah. they got to get out. Got to kick something away. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so we've got a movie to get to, which is of course Bridge of Spies. We're going to see Bridge of Spies right now. Yeah, you'd think we would have held off on reviewing it until no. after we saw it. We're just going to no. talk about it real quick and like what we're looking forward to. And yeah. And go. then I'll, I'll bring the soundboard laptop and mics along with us and yeah. we'll comment as we're watching. You'll hear us like ordering popcorn and Absolutely. telling other people in the theater to be quiet and all that sort of thing. Yeah. You'll hear me say when they say, do you want butter on that? I'll say just a little bit, which makes me feel better mm. uh, as opposed to <laughs> as much as you can, uh, which I stopped saying a long time ago. So um, I never said that by the way, but, uh, but that was definitely my, my mentality um so uh <laughs> oh the life of a fat person and the constant uh the constant uh managing of other people's uh expectations and uh and uh, views of yourself um so okay uh, i do have a written review of bridge of spies at more than one lesson.com which i will also link to in this post if you don't want to listen to the whole episode please do please do because we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff here that i don't talk about in the episode so, okay, Bridge of... What, what was that? You said that you uh, don't article, talk about in the, the article. article. Thank but, you. Yeah. Thank you very much for letting me, uh, you know, for not letting me get away with that. I just now. didn't want the listener to be confused. I think our listeners are smarter than you give them credit for, Josh. I don't. Listener, you should feel insulted. <laughs> um, so, Bridge of Spies, nominated for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for Mark Rylance, Best Original Score best sound mixing, and best production design. Now, for one, I hope it wins best original screenplay. Not because I think it's a good screenplay, but because I have it in my fantasy awards list. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's going to win. I was going to say, like, that seems odd, having seen all the movies this year, if you were like, Bridge of Spies, that's the that's script. That's the best script, obviously. Um, but having to pick them beforehand, I can I can see that. No, oh, no question about being it. A, and it has gotten me plenty of points. Yeah? Um, yeah. Uh, and then for adapted, in terms I of nominations, as far, as far as nominations yeah. and yeah, I don't think it's actually won anything. I think it's won one or two like obscure critics awards, but mm. whatever. I got my nomination points yeah. and that's all that matters. That's and then, something. Uh, for adapted screenplay, I have Room, which has gotten mm. me a lot of nomination and a lot of wins. That's, yeah, so, that's a solid one. Uh, and it could, and it could get the Oscar. I think it's between that and the big short and the big short seems to have the momentum, mm. but it's hard to know. Yeah. So anyway. But enough about that. Nobody cares about that except me, and I do very much more so about uh, than almost anything uh, in my life, including oh. you, Josh. Well, that's understandable. Including all of my podcasts, except that Survivor one, um, <laughs> which uh, Jen and I just discussed, by the way, and uh, we will be 
continuing the podcast when the next season starts next week. So oh, be, wow, be on the look, yeah, so cool. be on the lookout for that. Um, so, okay. So Bridge of Spies nominated for a number of Oscars, uh, written by Matt, I think that's Charmin, I don't know. And then the Coen brothers, which I find, and then directed by Steven Spielberg, I find the Coen brothers involvement fascinating and at times invisible. Yeah, it's Do you odd. get a lot of vibe, uh, Coen Brothers vibe? I get it a little bit here and there in the script, but not much. For some of the script. Well, you know, it's the same thing I thought about Unbroken when I saw that the other year. Like, that's also by yeah. them and somebody else. Or was there even somebody else? There must have been somebody else there, on that there, one. There, there had to be. Like, because oh, yeah. it doesn't feel like them at all. Yeah. So it's almost like they wrote a script and then the producer would bring in a third person to shave off everything that is them. Yeah, I know. Like, to take out all the personality. And I. Uh, Part of me wonders why they're doing this. Like, do they not want to make these movies themselves? It's not like the Coen brothers need money and they're like, we'll write it for you, sir, for another bowl of gruel or something. Like, I I, 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 I can't if, understand. If it's like a goodwill thing from the studio, like maybe a studio is more willing to fund one of their films. Like, uh, Hail Caesar has big stars in it. That's fine. But like a movie like A Serious Man, which has no big stars in it, yeah. maybe... Or like Inside Lewin Davis, smaller movies, yeah. and maybe it's just like, okay, if you guys write this, and we can say this film was written by the Coen brothers, uh, if you do this, then yes, we will put money into these smaller films <laughs> that aren't going to make us any money. But basically, the, their the, names- But are also written by the Coen brothers. That's where the, yeah. that's where the thing doesn't yeah. make as much sense to me. I mean, I, I think you may be right, but- uh, I don't know. It's, it's something that- Because this is not a thing. This is a new thing. Yeah. It's not like they were writing scripts in the mid nineties. Like this is not, not for other people, not for other people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is a new development that's only in the, like the last couple of years and I just can't figure it out. Um, so I hypothesize that they're just doing a favor They're, I think by lending, I think it's entirely possible that bridge of spies as the screenplay would not get the nominations that it's been getting. If not for their names being attached, oh, probably the screenplay not. is fine. Yeah. Uh, but I think, Hey, it's the it's the Coen brothers. Uh, their name is instant prestige and a certain degree of uh, quirkiness. Yeah. And, uh, you know, certainly if I see, you know, with Unbroken, when I saw that they had co-written the script, same with Bridge of Spies, my immediate thought is, oh, well, that actually intrigues me. Mm -hmm. And maybe it gets more people into the theater that might otherwise think like, OK, I've seen I've seen Spielberg movies before. I know what to expect. Yeah. Um, I don't and know. I mean, maybe eventually, at least with the the savvier <laughs> film community, they'll they'll. Uh, they'll lose that draw because if you see like four or five movies like this where it doesn't feel like their type of script, then it kind of doesn't matter that they're co-writing it, you know? Yeah. But this one, I feel like there are moments where I can feel it more than I could with Unbroken. Like Unbroken, if you had asked me, did the Coen brothers have any involvement in this one? If I'd watched it not knowing and you'd asked me, I would have said, of course not. Right. But <laughs> there it, are a couple of moments usually character moments, usually little flares of dialogue. Yeah. And often, because the film is is funny at times, mm -hmm. uh, especially when Tom Hanks is dealing with other diplomats from other countries. Yeah. And in those moments, they feel not zany, but a little bit farcical. Yeah. And I think that's the Coens. The, the times when he's dealing with the people who like can't say that they represent... Uh, the Soviet Union, but they do rep you know they represent the Soviet Union. That feels like them. Some I think some of the some of uh, Tom Hanks's 
dialogue in his first, the first scene where you see him when he's having yeah. that uh, discussion with the insurance people. Yeah. That kind of feels like the Coen brothers to me. Yeah. Then there's stuff like the, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, the stuff like Mark Rylance's big, uh, his, his uh, monologue about the standing man or whatever yeah. it is. That doesn't feel like them at all to me. It doesn't. It's well written, mm-hmm. but it's not them. That yeah. feels much more like it belongs in a Steven Spielberg movie. Absolutely. And, and, Basically, everything with the ending feels like a Steven Spielberg movie. More. Yeah, in especially way, the very ending, which I yeah, absolutely. dislike. Um, we'll have to define uh, what that means, mm. uh, what you consider the very ending, but we'll get to that mm. in a moment. So, so Bridge of Spies is a film that is it's, uh, takes place during the Cold War, mm. and it's such an interesting story, and it is a true story, and mm. a lot of the stuff, and it looks like not much of it was embellished, which I mm. think is very interesting, Yeah, where... There is this uh, Soviet spy who was caught and, you know, put on trial and found guilty, but not uh, sentenced to death, but instead just, I guess, life imprisonment. But then, or at least a a long time in prison. I don't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then there were, uh, there was an American uh, surveillance, is that the word? Uh, Plane or something like that that uh, went down and the pilot was held in the Soviet Union. And so they needed... I think it because it was like a U-2, wasn't it? Is that, yeah, I don't recall. But like, it's not like it was a bomber or anything No, because like it was this. specifically it was like to take pictures. Photos. Yeah, I think yeah. it was a U-2, which that would be a surveillance plan. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, they, so you have these two countries that are basically enemies and they have each other's spies, basically, and they need somebody to negotiate the, the, sw- the swap. Mm-hmm. And so they bring in Tom Hanks, whose character because everyone loves Tom Hanks. Actually, hey, you know what? <laughs> he could he could convince me of some things, even some <laughs> things that I think are maybe uh, morally reprehensible. That's a movie I'd like to see where they they just have to send Tom Hanks yeah. in to to diffuse some kind of situation. Yeah, uh, it would work absolutely. <laughs> um, and uh, and it, yeah, and I will actually talk about the casting of Tom Hanks in a moment, but. Um, but yeah, so he his character is an insurance negotiator essentially, and this is a this is his job, and so he goes in and has to navigate the the various interests, and he realizes that oh, not everyone's being totally honest with me all the time, so now I have to try and sift through that mm-hmm. on top of everything else. Um, but the whole time, uh, oh, and he's sorry, he's he's a lawyer uh, on top of everything else. So right. initially, his job is to represent the the soviet spy Mm -hmm. because we need to our court system need to give the rep give the impression of due process yeah Uh, and then he actually winds up committing to it more than anybody expected him to which is actually a a development that i think is really interesting Mm. um so sorry i didn't mean to get bogged down in plot details but uh so there's there's a lot going on with with this film and I will, I will lead with this, that I was excited to see it, but the more I thought about it, and the more, uh, and once the film started, like for probably for the first half hour, I started getting this sinking feeling in my stomach that 
the film was going to basically make the argument that there is nothing really that different between the United States and the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to make that argument. Now, having taken that, having been fascinated by Soviet Russia to the point of taking a Russian and Soviet history class in college, now I recognize it's just one class, but it was very informative. Um, uh, and while I recognize that, you know, in the U.S. at the time, you had McCarthyism, you had some some pretty ugly things here. Um, compared to the Soviet Union, uh, peaches and cream. Uh, <laughs> you had people being, you know, you had millions of people being killed. Uh, you had a lot of paranoia and just no, really nobody was safe. You had people starving to death yeah. uh, and that sort of thing. So more of that under Stalin than, you know, Khrushchev or, or Brezhnev. But mm. um, so I was concerned that the film would be cut from the same cloth as like Steven Spielberg's Munich, which takes a much more fair handed look at the, uh, Israel Palestine conflict Mm -hmm. that it would be that. And that I, I, I thought that might frustrate me. And as the film goes on and we see that the Soviet spy is humanized quite a bit and that he gets, he grows close and maybe even friends with Tom Hanks. Um, I just started thinking like, okay, here we go. And then when we see, so many people talk about due process and uh, and innocent until proven guilty, but you see that they're not really committed to that idea. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, this is going to be about American corruption and who are we to judge the Soviets and stuff like that. That was my concern, and it persisted for a while until Tom Hanks goes to the Soviet Union yeah. and you see, oh, oh, okay, this is worse. Yeah. Much much worse. Yeah. Um, it's one thing to imply that maybe not everybody is as committed to certain ideals uh, as one would think. It's another thing to just view s- just out and out corruption uh, that is just understood. Right. Just um, generally accepted corruption. Yeah. And then to me, the best the best indication of of the comparison, and it's even it's a really ham fisted idea, but it's one that I think is I'm, I'm almost thankful it's there because I can absolutely, I can point to that and say, if you want proof that Spielberg is not drawing a, a parallel, uh, and, and is not saying it's a one-to-one ratio between the Soviet union and the United States, I can point to that and say, that is your proof. And it is, uh, uh parallel scenes of uh, people hopping a fence mm. again, super on the nose, mm-hmm. but it underlines the theme in a way that I'm not usually comfortable with, but I'm, I'm thankful it's there because there are plenty of people who, uh, in my, in my world, there are plenty of conservatives that have a problem with that. And to which I say, look at those two scenes, look what happens when people are trying to jump a fence in Soviet Russia. Mm-hmm. And then look what happens when people are trying to so jump a fence in the United States. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty clear cut to me. Yeah. And uh, the way that they're going to handle this this guy, the spy, yeah. Mark Rylance's character, um, uh, in, the, uh, in the U.S. there's a lengthy legal battle, even though it may be yeah. less than yeah, he, he should show, have gotten. Yeah. Right. Um, but he's still, you know, they find somebody who actually will defend him. Yeah. Whereas when it looks like he's going to go back he kind of knows this kind of a foregone conclusion of what's going to happen to him. And it's not going to be a lot of protection. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, 
and then we see the way that the American prisoner is treated yeah. on the other side. And uh, yeah, that's not that doesn't look too great either. Yeah. Uh, but so in the in the larger sense, the film definitely makes an argument that the principles behind the United States are stronger and better than the principles behind the Soviet Union. Yeah. And that is to its credit. Yeah. But it's not merely that. It does something better than that. And and this is what I like about the movie. There are things I don't like about the movie. But the thing from a thematic standpoint, and we'll get more into it in a moment, um, the thing that I really like is that it does not stop there. It doesn't stop at saying this country is better than this country. What it says is within each, you will find people of integrity, people of morality, and you know, and that's what you have with the Mark Rylance character and the Tom Hanks character. Uh, and then you have a wonderful little parallel where when you see, and again, this might be a little bit on the nose as well, but it's, but in a way that doesn't bother me, there's Spielberg has a way of having, of putting, you know, hitting something right on the nose. And it seems like the most, not the most obvious thing, but like, well, yes, of course you would do it that way. Why Mm. wouldn't you? That's, (laughs) that's the perfect way to do it. Steven Spielberg. Um, where when we see Mark Rylance's character, uh, he has a sniffle. He'll just do that consistently, uh, maybe like once or twice per scene. And it just seems like a, an odd little affectation uh, of character. But then uh, when Tom Hanks goes to Soviet Russia, he uh, his coat is basically taken by a bunch of thugs and he develops a cold. And now he is sniffing as he's talking to people. And it just kind of draws this parallel between these two guys that when you see Mark Rylance doing it, you're not really sure exactly why he's doing it. And it seems at times a little bit off putting. But then when we see Tom Hanks doing it, we know why. Mm-hmm. And so when we see that, oh, well, th- maybe there is a reason that Mark Rylance's character is doing it as well. And maybe I should not just be immediately annoyed by him. <laughs> um, so, but also it's not just that character within the Soviet Union, the people that Tom Hanks deals with, some of them are, yes, a little bit corrupt. Some of them are a little bit shady, but then there are others. There's one who I think is, I don't remember exactly his title, but there's one guy who's often kind of silly and, and there's a, a kind of a goofy element to him, but it is very clear. He is also committed to making this deal happen. Mm -hmm. He does not want war. He does not want conflict. He wants what Tom Hanks wants. Mm -hmm. And the two, and they see that in each other. They see that desire for peace and that desire for, you know, calm, um, and and, you know, reconciliation between the two countries. And so that's one of the things that I just love about it is this, uh, uh, I do feel like, and Josh, you and I were talking before we started recording about the idea of identity politics, that, more and more, uh, not to get overly politi- political right now, that more and more people are seen as what they, uh, as simply what they represent. Like you and I are white, straight, Christian men. Um, and then there are black men, black women, there's gay, there's, uh, you know, Hispanic, there's poor, there's rich, there's all of these things. And it's just, people are seen as the group that they belong to. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a remarkably anti-American idea. And so does Bridge of Spies. It basically says, Mm -hmm. yet even when we are looking at our enemy, there are people within that that are just as honorable and just as committed to peace and morality. They are not pure evil. Mm -hmm. Even if they were, even if they 
exist under an evil regime. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I, that I, that is a, a nuance that I really appreciate about the film. Um, but we can get more into that in a moment. Um, did you have any, we're, we're keeping things broad at the moment. Did you have any expectations going into the movie? What is your, your general view of the film? I think I probably gave it like three and a half out, going by letterboxed. I think I probably <laughs> gave it like three and a half out of five stars. I think I was at three. I'm, I, I don't remember. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of expect expectations going in. I haven't seen a Steven Spielberg film that I really liked in 10 years, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. So I, I kind of wasn't expecting to get a whole lot out of it. Yeah. I always enjoy Tom Hanks' performance. I feel he's yeah. always, he's always a solid actor. And if he's, um, unless he's really oddly miscast, which doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen very often. He's, he always does a good job. Um, and I thought this was no different. Like he was a fun character to watch and he's easy to root for. And, yeah. uh, yeah. Do you feel like the film along those lines? Sorry, sorry to interrupt you so uh, soon. Um, I was going to do it eventually. <laughs> yeah, of course. But, um, I feel like the film is a little bit Capra esque. And I would say that at this point, Tom Hanks is about as close to Jimmy Stewart as we can get. Yeah. Like, I can both see of that. them are just inherently likable. Yeah. I can't picture them as villains. Yeah. Um, and like if this movie were made 60 years ago, well, obviously Jimmy Stewart is who you would cast in that part. Yeah, I can see that. I don't know. Just a, just a thought I had. I'm sorry. Continue. Um, yeah. Yeah, they are two very similar actors if you think about it. Um, it would be interesting if you could find like an older movie like that and find all the actors who are as close to that type as as they are and almost like the fantasy casting things that you oh, do yeah. sometimes and just like make that movie like remake that movie with all these people because they fit that type yeah that'd be, be interesting awesome. um yeah but uh but so i think i was expect that that's all that i was really expecting um i think spy intrigue stuff can be interesting sometimes yeah for me uh it's not usually my favorite genre genre but it can be interesting especially when it's based in in uh, historical fact so I think that I was interested about that at least. Um, I think as I was watching it, I was having kind of the same worry that you did, which was, oh, they're going to turn this into you're not so different. You and we're not so different. You yeah. and I kind of thing, which they, they, they didn't really do. I think, I think really all they were trying to do is just humanize that, uh, the Mark Rylance character. What's, what's Rudolph Abel, Rudolph Abel. There it is. Um, yeah, which I think is good. Um, I don't think they... I think because of where the movie goes, there's no need to take him to task for being, like, supporting the Soviet Union and being a spy. Yeah. Um, because eventually we get to see what... The, the movie makes it clear that the Soviet Union is bad and yeah. um, that, you know we uh that it's not trying to say that he's just serving his country and it's just a yeah they just look at things differently it's like no they kind of murder people and <laughs> detain people against their will and kind of they um, kind of <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so so i think that's good at the same time i feel like the, the, there's part of me feels like it's almost too many 
too many different directions it goes in, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like you can make one movie that's about a lawyer who defends somebody that he doesn't agree with because he believes in the, you know, the, yeah. the, uh, he believes in his job and he believes in doing the best at that job, even if it's, you know, be, be because he has a moral responsibility to, to, to yeah. defend that person. Um, the, uh, you know, Atticus Finch yeah. uh, thing. Um, or is that kind of the deal in, uh, What's the one with uh, uh, the Devil's Advocate? <laughs> no, with uh, Jeremy Irons and oh, uh, Reversal of Fortune. Yes, yeah, kind of. That's that's kind of the same deal because yeah. he doesn't really know if he thinks the guy's. Yeah, yeah, he takes the case assuming this guy is guilty. Yeah. Um. So I feel like that's one movie you can make. Then there's the movie about a guy who is not who doesn't know anything about international diplomacy who is sent to be the uh the person to handle a prisoner trade yeah um i feel like that could be its own movie it does i would say it's it's you know you talk about it going off in too many in too many directions i think it's just those two but it is it's an odd story to be told and i understand why they would tell both stories because it's not like you're going to have a seat. You're not going to have a bridge of spies and then bridge of spies <laughs> to, uh, off to mother Russia, you know, or something like that. Um, and so, but it, it is odd because when you realize that the, the, the court case part of it, the part that takes place in the U S, um, is the first like, uh, 40 minutes I'd say. And then yeah. the rest of it is the Russia stuff. It's just like, yeah. I've said it before, not every movie has to adhere to a three act structure, but that it's such a, such an odd tone. And when you realize just how much of it is going to be spent during the negotiation, which I guess makes sense. Cause mm. that's when stuff breaks down. It comes down to like life or death. Right. Um, but yeah, if anything, it almost feels like either the court case stuff should be longer or shorter. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. know. It's hard to say. Um, so it's a little bit odd that way. Not necessarily a bad thing, but I don't know. There, there's something a little odd about that. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to remember. I, I remember walking out of the movie and I had a lot of problems with it, but I can't remember what all of them are at the moment. Yeah. You know what? I, I'm, I'm kind of the same way, which I think is maybe to the film's credit that I remember yeah. what I like. Yeah. And I don't really remember what I didn't like. And there mm-hmm. was stuff that I didn't like. There was stuff that I thought was like really obvious or just... Uh, or ham fisted or whatever it is. I, and I do think some of the meta or the, the, I think some of the, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is some of the things they do like them, maybe like visual analogies or visual yeah. metaphors or something like that, that they use uh, that I don't necessarily like. I kind of don't like that. It's called bridge of spies and the climax of the movie is trading spies on a yeah, bridge. Yeah. It's like, ah, okay. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I think there's stuff like that that I don't like. I do remember one thing that I do not like, and I, I think I don't like Janusz Kaminski as a cinematographer, or at least now. Okay. Like, because looking back through his filmography, there's some of the things that he did in the 90s that I like. Yeah. But I, 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 it's rare that I see 
the cinematography in something and I'm like, I dislike this. And that happened with Lincoln and that happened with this movie. And uh, Indiana Jones, the, the Crystal Skull one. Well, yeah, no, no that was never going to be good right. no matter what. But but like the cinematography in all three of those movies, I specifically was like, I, I don't like the way that he's doing this. It's odd. Uh, I'm with you on Lincoln. I'm with you on Crystal Skull. This one I actually liked. Really? Um, I mean, it's no safe and private Ryan, but then what is? Yeah. Um, no, this one I actually like just partially maybe because of the way that it all worked together, like the the costumes, the art direction and the cinematography. Mm. It's all none of it feels lived in. I'll say that it all feels like it's our memory of these things. Like everything is yeah. is, is heightened and everything is the essence of what it is rather than the actual thing. And that includes the way it is shot mm-hmm. uh, where, you know. If there's a color, it's going to be a very rich color. If it's if we're going to see you know snow on the ground in the Soviet Union, it's going to be, look as bleak as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I liked that. I, I responded to that. I don't even remember the color in it though. The movie seems so beige to me. Hmm. And maybe a lot of it takes place in the Soviet Union, which uh, that's kind of I mean that's kind of what it was like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, in in a snowy in snowy Berlin in the winter there's not a lot of you know flowers to be seen and bright colors but um, everything feels kind of washed out and I, I don't like the way that he uses I think it's artificial light when he's shooting indoors I think he's mm. shooting on sets and he's using light to shoot in through the windows to mimic sunlight mm. and it always looks fake to me like to the point that it's distracting which is odd I don't I, that's not usually something that I notice, but I remember noticing it in this end in Lincoln. Yeah, it's I. It's interesting. The because um, I remember walking out of the film specifically being not necessarily excited about the cinematography. I didn't think it was you know some of the one of the best shot films of the year or anything like that. But um, but I did think that uh, that like oh this is the most I feel like this was the most effort he's put into a movie in a long time. Mm-hmm. Certainly more than Lincoln. Yeah. Um, which I thought was about as bland as could be. You're saying uh, Kaminsky, Kaminsky or, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, but uh, just, I felt like it's a very, it's a very rich, I, I feel like there, it uses shadow really well um, and just pools of light, you know, like uh, when there are backroom deals happening. Hmm. Um, and now you say, you say you think of it as beige. I will say, Going along with that color thing, which I don't know if I've ever ever mentioned it on this podcast. You know the color. Yeah, thing. yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think of the film as a combination of a very deep, rich green combined with a very dark, rich brown. Hmm. So, like, not necessarily a forest, but more just I don't know, just um, just almost like um like a really nice study or something like that, you know, um, <laughs> wood paneling and everything. Yeah. Just like, I don't know. It's hard to explain, but I just, I think of it as, and I think of it as a, as a movie that is very dark, obviously not when they're in Russia, that's just very stark and bleak and that sort of thing. But I think of it, excuse me, especially when we're in the city and when Tom Hanks doesn't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's being followed by people in trench coats and fedoras, as everybody is uh, is wearing at the time. Um, and it seems very creepy, and and he's unsure of what's happening. I don't know. The use of shadow, I thought, was very was very interesting. And I don't know. It just it seemed like Janusz Kaminski was actually trying stuff again, or tr- or or taking an interest in the material. <laughs> Whereas Lincoln, it, I I got none, like almost none of that. Yeah. Um, 
But I don't know. It's uh, that's interesting that you did that you didn't respond to it at all. Yeah. Um. Although he did also go to my school, so maybe I'm just you know showing yeah. some school pride there. <laughs> Could be. Uh, I there's something else I'm gonna say. I I did like. Um. And he's a kind of like traditional Hollywood uh, developments in the story, but I do like things like the way that uh, Tom Hanks decides he's going to take some, some risks to help people on his own. Like he's going to buck the yeah. way that people have told him to do it to stay the, the safe way that people have told him to do things yeah. because he can, uh, he thinks he has a, an opportunity to help some people and he's going to make a big risk for it. Yeah. And I do like those moments. I, uh, like I said, that's, a little bit of a stereotypical Hollywood move, but I, I think it works in this film. I like, I like the way it happens. And that's why the casting of Tom Hanks is so key. He has such a naturalism to him that something that any move that, that a standard cliche to a negative degree movie character would do, he can sell and make it seem like the most organic thing and just maybe undercut the drama of it. Uh, and just make it seem like, a decent guy making the best possible decision. Yeah. Even if you've seen that decision made a million times. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think that was a development I liked. And then I liked also how wrapped up in that was the, uh, I think some of the local politics and then the way that those are connected to the greater politics and how there's like, once he's in Berlin, there are several levels of politicians and all of them have things that they want but uh, I guess the, the sort of pyramid of, of wants and needs and yeah. uh, the, the bargaining tools that they have. Yeah. And I, I thought that was interesting. I, I, there were some of those things that I wouldn't have necessarily thought about, but how the guy in Berlin wants to look big to the people from the Soviet Union, yeah. but uh, he can't, like he doesn't necessarily have the power that he wants to have because he can he can make decisions to try and show himself as powerful but that then will then hurt them so it's some of that politics i think was interesting well and that speaks to a specificity Mm -hmm. yeah this this story could have been as broad as as can be but things like that is like now you're you're selling the reality uh and especially and and it's the it's like the political complications it's why Mm -hmm. things can't get done in politics because people (laughs) have an a larger understanding of what needs to happen but then they also have uh their own agenda of like well this will make me look good it's it's one of the things that i actually like about the west wing is Hmm. when you have a good episode you have somebody it's just like okay well we want to pass this bill but i don't want that guy's name on it Hmm. and as long as that guy's name on it is on it i'm not going to work to pass this bill even though everybody agrees that it's the best possible bill Mm -hmm. uh and that would and that it has bipartisan support like petty things get in the way yeah um and the idea of yeah the guy in in uh in east no is it east germany or is it just germany it's it's a yeah east germany east germany um yeah uh, it just and his it's a completely understandable desire which is i'm not going to be seen as just a puppet of the soviet union even though everybody knows he is right you know and just and he knows that he needs things from the soviet union but he has to look big enough to his people under him and 
to make it seem like he's not going to get stepped on by the Soviets. Yeah. Details like that. They sell the reality of the film and they get me and they just and they actually up the stakes because then it's just like that's one more thing that it's bad enough just general politics and and the Cold War. But now Tom Hanks also has to navigate people's personal feelings. Yeah. And that's that complicates things to such a degree that, you know, it's it's it almost it's almost farcical like this film mm-hmm. if you twisted it just a little bit it could have been a genuine comedy and maybe that's what maybe there was a coen brothers script of this originally that that's what it was it yeah. was some kind of farce about this nonsense of going back and forth and dealing with all these personal and uh, uh international politics with yeah. uh with a trade like this yeah um let me ask you this the okay if there is one element of the film that has been praised over and over and over again, more so than the script, more so than than Tom Hanks or anything else. It is the performance of Mark Rylance. Mm. Now, I have not seen Wolf Hall, which I've heard is wonderful. Uh, I think I saw him in a film called The Gunman, which is not a good movie. It's in my <laughs> bottom ten of the year, but he is. But I noticed that was the first I'd seen of him. Really, and I saw that and I was like, that guy is good. I huh. like him a lot. And it is, and most people agree that the race for, as far as the Oscars, the race for supporting actors between Mark Rylance and Sylvester Stallone, yeah. and it could go to either one. The favorite, it's people are leaning towards Stallone, but uh, I thought Mark Rylance was very, very good. But I, I just, I don't embrace it. I, again, I, I feel bad. I have nothing negative to say about his performance. But I also f- maybe find it a little bit mannered. Like it's it's weird to have a character to have a performance that's mannered in its lack of affectation. You know what I mean? Like his mm-hmm. his character is very calm, and he doesn't really he, he he has a really good poker face. He doesn't show a lot of emotion, and it's weird that the lack of emotion can actually be uh, overdone. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it, at times it is, and but it also fits with the character as written. So I, and I, I feel bad speaking ill of his performance because I enjoy his performance, but I am just not over the moon about it. Like some people say, it just it is like this undeniably amazing performance, and I am just not there. Uh, what is your thought? I I thought the exact same thing. Like the first couple scenes with him in the movie, I was like, I don't like this. Like I don't I don't like what he's doing. He feels like kind of a caricature to me. Yeah. And I think the more they give him depth and further on in the movie when he has to deal with more specific yeah. uh, obstacles, then I think he, he feels a little bit more natural to me. But but yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't know. Well, and it's it's when he's talking, when you have him talking about his country and the idea that he's going back to his country, which theoretically is the best thing, <laughs> except he knows the situation. Yeah. Like the character, the thing that Mark, he portrays intelligence mm-hmm. and it's, you know, nobody's going to deny that, but also more than simply intelligence, a, a deep understanding of the circumstances, yeah. whether it be. I know I'm on trial and I know how it's going to go for me mm-hmm. or, okay, uh, I know you're negotiating and I recognize that I should be happy to be going back, but I know that I, this might not go great for me. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so that is where his performance really 
shines and it's a lot of it's in the eyes and a lot mm-hmm. of it's just in his demeanor. His face doesn't really change because the nature of the character is that he can't betray what he's thinking and feeling a lot. Yeah. Um, I liked certain elements of those first scenes with him specifically just the way he moves and the, and the quiet, I think I like more of the way it is shot where he's just, you see him painting and it's just all, it's all just very quiet and very deliberate and careful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think his performance plays that pretty well. I think a lot of it is that he's, there's this, he has an expression on his face where it's not an actual frown, but it's a very specific thing that it, he's doing with his mouth. It's you know like he's making about, a right? face. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, now, you know, I've seen Mark Rylance and he does sort of have that face, but he's definitely he's definitely twisting the corner of his corners of his mouth down a little bit. And it's a choice he's making and that's fine, but it's one that I have a hard time getting past. I have to basically avoid looking at his mouth and I have to look at his eyes. When I look at his eyes, that's when I can really embrace the performance. But he's doing all these other things that I just feel like I just don't understand why his nomination for best actor was such a foregone conclusion. I, I wound up being genuinely happy that when the BPs were announced or when people were submitting their votes, I was genuinely happy that he was not going to be nominated because hmm. I don't think he deserves to be, hmm. you know, like when we think about the Oscars, like, you know, when I look at what Oscar Isaac is doing in Ex Machina or Benicio del Toro is doing in Sicario, it's like, Oh, I would take him out uh, very easily. Yeah. And, and, but you and I are in the minority on that. Everybody yeah. are, is just over the moon about him. It's odd to me. But. I think it may just be that people are kind of excited because it's a memorable character. So I think whenever there's an actor that yeah. is somebody that we haven't really seen before yeah. that plays a, mer- a memorable character yeah. and is able to hold his own against somebody like Hanks. a Tom Hanks. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think that stands out to people. Yeah. Um, and it's it's so interesting because what I everything I've heard about Wolf Hall, I could see the type of actor that Mark Rylance is doing wonderfully, being perfectly suited for that. Well, he's like a theater actor who comes from yeah. Shakespeare and stuff, right? Yeah. So that that seems to make sense. Yeah, like it's it's one of those things like you can tell, like in watching him, even though I'm not thrilled about his performance, I can tell, like oh, in the right role, this would be maybe <laughs> like he could be one of my favorite actors ever. You can almost see like. I, I think maybe if you put Lawrence Olivier in this part, he would play it the same way. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can definitely see, you know, and uh, talking about like the thing he does with his mouth, like the face that he's kind of pulling that everything about that says I'm playing to the back row. It's like, well, the back row is as close (laughs) as the camera now. Um, And I don't mean to say that like he's inexperienced. Obviously he, he has experience in other films and and television and stuff. Um, And I don't, and I, I, I feel bad again, singling him out, but that is the thing that everybody like if the film had had gotten no other nominations the one that it was guaranteed was supporting actor Mm -hmm. and that was something that it just struck me as such an odd uh such an odd assumption but uh but we'll move on uh we'll stop bashing terrible actor mark rylance (laughs) um and we'll move on to some other things um, now I don't want to get into our best of pictures mode, mm. but what, but I will say is looking at the, the nominations, uh, so best picture, original screenplay, supporting actor, original score, uh, sound mixing, production design, production design. Absolutely. The one that mystifies me is sound mixing. I, I think I've, I, you know, I, movies like Mad Max, I can understand any kind of sound design or mm-hmm. sound award there, but 
when it's a movie like this, which is which is a smaller movie, a more intimate film, and yeah, the use of sound is fine. Is it award worthy? I, I have no like as I've said before, the the big thing that my school instilled in me was just how vital sound is mm. to film, which again is something that one wouldn't immediately think with a visual medium, but sound helps sell the reality of the visual we're seeing. So I feel like I'm more than a lot of people I know have a deep appreciation for sound. And yet I still have no clue <laughs> as to how a film like Bridge of Spies gets nominated for best sound mixing. Yeah. It's a weird thing I, to, I'm just talking about the Oscars at this yeah, point. Yeah, but. I would have to watch it again with that in mind. Cause every now and then there's a movie that like does pay a lot of attention to detail in yeah. a way that is small and you might not necessarily notice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> At the same time, part of me thinks like it's possible a lot of people making these nominations didn't actually see the movie and they were like, oh, it's a war movie. Those usually have good sound mixing. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> Without um, knowing that it's not that kind of war movie. Um, uh, and then it was also uh, nominated for Best Original Score. I rem- it's I believe Thomas Newman doing it and it, it sounds like a standard Thomas Newman thing. You know, it's the first time that Spielberg hasn't worked with John Williams because he was too busy doing Star Wars. Hey, yeah. Um, and uh, and the music I think is fine. I didn't necessarily love it. I pr- I, I love the production design all around. Um, I don't know. Maybe you don't. You seem like the type that wouldn't jerk. Yeah, I just hate production design. <laughs> you just don't like it. yeah as a concept. Yeah, I just like wish it. they wouldn't do it. You just shoot. Yeah, you know, it's like hey, look, you're in the warehouse. Yeah. you know, you're on the soundstage. Just I shoot see on a the bare soundstage. Yeah. You know, you're, if they're good you, actors, they can pretend they have props exactly. and desks if it's good and enough costumes. For, if it's good enough for Thornton Wilder. It's good enough for you. Um, so uh, I want every movie to look like Dogville. <laughs> um, to what degree? Purely from a set design standpoint? And I thorough? want them to be just super uncomfortable. Okay. All right. Absolutely. Um, and so, anti-American. Oh, no question. Uh, uh, yeah, Bridge of Spies would not get along with Dogville if the two were actual people. Um, so, yeah, so by and large, I, I think Bridge of Spies, I'd say it's a net positive. I feel like there's a lot of good in there. Um, I think it it could have pushed through and been something genuinely great. But I think there are certain instincts and impulses that Steven Spielberg has, and I think the film becomes overly sentimental at the end which speaks to what you're talking about now what uh, what is what about the ending which ending are you are you referring to uh, the absolute last thing or, yes or what? Okay. The, which i like the thing with the people jumping over the bridges i understand that it does make the connection that you were talking about earlier jumping over the fence uh yes fence, did i say bridge yes uh, that's um, a very that's jump, a very different ending <laughs> jumping over that bridge of spies um <laughs> No, but that that just that was one of those kind of ham-fisted visual yeah. metaphors. I just I just don't like that kind of thing. Um, it's like when Tom Hanks is at the end of Castaway, literally standing at a crossroads, and it's like, all right, we yeah, we get it, we get it. You, you'd be surprised how many people don't get that. Yeah, no, and Castaway. it's and maybe that's like, you know, maybe I'm being too hard on a filmmaker because they are in reality communicating something to far more people that they wouldn't have gotten anyway so you know maybe that's me this this speaks to a conversation that i that i had on on the show um with robert about whiplash that there are certain things about whiplash that i find a little bit ham-fisted and unbelievable but then people have said that yes but that's 
the cho- the the choices that I'm talking about are more mainstream choices mm. uh, that uh, you know big thing like the car accident for example mm-hmm. in Whiplash that that's something that I find from a story standpoint a little bit on the nose and a little bit too convenient um, from a story standpoint uh, and a character standpoint but then somebody said like yes but you're thinking in terms of this being like a small independent film that is committed to like a certain degree of reality. Whereas maybe the film is meant for a larger audience. Maybe it's meant for a, a mainstream, it's not meant for kids, obviously, or mm-hmm. teenagers, but like it's meant for a mature audience that is just going to be engaged, not people like you and I who are looking to just pick apart every little thing that's good yeah. or bad about it. And looking at it in those terms, then mainstream, it's not necessarily courting a mainstream audience, but it's not going to try and alienate them either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so doing things in kind of broad strokes, whether it be, you know, the car accident in, um, in whiplash or that visual metaphor at the end of bridge of spies that just kind of says, yes, look at these two, you know, Tom Hanks is on a train. He sees somebody hop in a fence and very different results in the, in the Soviet union and in the United States. And it's one of the last images of the film I can see a number of people who just went to see and I, hey, let's go see this Tom Hanks movie. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I realize that I sound maybe a little bit condescending. I'm not trying to, but there are people that look for very different things in their movies uh, than we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say like my mother who mm-hmm. loves Tom Hanks mm-hmm. and might go see the movie. And I think when they see that, it's a distinct enough image that it will – and so many of the circumstances are the same. He's literally seeing it from the window of a train. Like yeah. everything about it is so similar that I could see someone imme- like they cannot avoid. They can't help but make the connection. Yeah, and then then not approvingly. Like oh yeah, yeah. that's I'm reminded of this other thing. And to you and I, it seems like the most obvious thing in the it world. It feels like spoon feeding. Yeah, but to most people who don't, who either don't approach movies the same way we do or don't don't look for the same things we do. Maybe that is, yeah, you know, and this, and Spielberg is always going for uh, a mainstream audience. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's a thing that I'm willing to forgive. I like David hated it. Um, <laughs> hated that element hated of that, it or hated that, the movie as a whole or both. Oh, he hated that. The, okay. the, the jumping the fence thing. Mm. Um, and I, even I was just like, well, this is on the nose. But again, as I say, like it's super helpful when I'm talking to people that we're ta- that, that we're talking about who, who might think uh, it's like, oh, I think the film is maybe drawing a comparison between the two, the two countries. Like, yes, but look, I can point to that element and say one to one comparison. There is no comparison. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, I find it helpful from a, from an explanatory standpoint, mm. but, uh, but yeah. So, um, and it is, I think it might be a little bit, the thing that's on the nose to me about the ending is just how, visually different often in the use of color as well mm-hmm. that the United States is from Russia. It's like, I recognize Russia is bleak. Um, as you, as they say, and I believe the very last episode of Seinfeld, when they're talking about uh, which country they're going to go, they're going to go to. And someone says, what about Russia? It's like, mm, it's a little bit bleak. <laughs> and then someone's like, well, what do you mean? Uh, you know, it does not all of it is bleak. And then George just says, when you're bleak, you're bleak. <laughs> and, uh, so yes, Russia can be a little bit bleak at times. Um, but it's, it's one thing when that Russia is that, but then 
when Tom Hanks, you know, arrives in the U S like everything is warm and autumnal and mm-hmm. it is the mo it is about as Norman Rockwellian as you can get. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, look, I, I recognize you're trying to draw a comparison here, but yeah. come on, you know, that's uh, to me, that's too on the nose. Is that the, the very end of the movie or does he then go back to his family after that? He and goes like, back to his family. I think I didn't like that either. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy watching him with Amy Ryan. I think the two yeah. have a nice chemistry. But, yeah. But everything about the way that interaction is written is, I think, a little bit, a little bit cheesy and and broad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that those are the things that I don't like about the movie when it sort of dips into that side yeah. of it when it becomes cheesy and broad. Yeah. And and just and one could just say sentimental. Like, yeah. I don't think I don't think anything that happens. In Russia, appropriately, I don't think anything that happens in the Soviet Russia is sentimental. They are they're, they're only in Berlin for all of it, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, in, but in still Berlin. Soviet territory, yeah. so same yeah. deal. But um, and so um, I feel like that section and and a lot of the section with the uh, with the court case because there's such a cynicism to it, mm-hmm. such an understanding that like yeah, nobody actually wants you to win this, buddy. Um, that cynicism undercuts any kind of uh, Capra-esque quality to yeah. it. And that's why I like that. That's why I like the Russian sequence. Mm-hmm. But anytime, anytime the cynicism or the stark, cold, hard reality is taken away and the sentimentality is all that's left, that's just like, oh boy, this doesn't, yeah. this doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think I'm the same way. And I feel like it's the same reason that I don't really like melodrama. It's kind of mm-hmm. like uh, there's something overly emotional about it yeah uh, and like unnaturally emotional and in melodrama they're kind of like know they're doing that yeah um which is why like a lot of people who liked carol this year are i feel like that's kind of a melodrama and i didn't like it i think partially because of that but i think if you're okay with that sort of thing and if you're coming into it expecting that then you're fine with it I actually I I liked it quite a bit, but that's the thing. Todd Haynes he did Far From Heaven, yeah. which which I loved hmm. because of it's such a such an effective throwback to a, a, a yeah a Douglas Sirk film. Yeah, and and it's, like it's literally based on an old melodrama. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so yeah, Carol is a film that actually I, I know this isn't what we're talking about. Everybody, sorry. Carol is a film that. I didn't really like when I first saw it, but elements of it have have stuck with me. Mm. Um, I think it's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and the music, while it's so frustrating, I love Carter Burwell. He's my favorite composer, and that is a really good score, but there's a little bit too much Philip Glass in it. And mm. I don't like when a composer is trying to <laughs> obviously emulate another composer. And of course, that's the film. That's the one score he gets nominated for um, mm. but uh, and could possibly win. Oh, no. It's probably going to go to Ennio Morricone. Oh, yeah. Um, almost, it's almost guaranteed. That's pretty solid. Um, so, sorry, we're not talking about Carol. We can move on. Um, so, we'll, we'll very briefly touch on the companion film. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And it is uh, Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion from 1937. The story of which, well, there's, there's a couple different stories going on. But the one that, to me, the one that makes the film... So special, so fascinating is this idea. So it takes place in World War One, and you have, uh, again, there's a few different storylines, but you have an instance where there is uh, a, I believe, is he French? There is a French captain mm-hmm. uh, who is then, ca- who's captured uh, and is held at a, mili- as a, at a German uh, prison camp. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the guy in charge of the prison camp is this, is this, uh, German captain who is, uh, also very aristocratic played, uh, wonderfully by Eric von Stroheim, Mm -hmm. who is, uh, who, along with being one of the more notable directors of the uh, early film era, uh, is also a striking on-screen presence. Yeah. Whether it be Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, even in Sunset Boulevard, yeah. where he plays, like, the help, yeah. he's still kind of, he, he, he uh, yeah, he has a strong presence. Yeah. Um, and so, the thing that strikes me as so interesting, and one of the things that I, that I just love, love about Grand Illusion, is that the the two captains become kind of friends mm-hmm. and that's very much at the behest of the, ca- of the German. Yeah. Uh, who now admittedly to him, uh, you know, uh, borders matter a lot less than, uh, status, you know, hmm. for him, it's very much about like, well, you and I are both from, Ari- uh, from the aristocracy, aristocracy and, so and that's all on the same. So there level. is that, which, yeah. you know, he still sees things as like, segmented and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, that kind of thing. But, um, but there's, the, but there's, he has such an obvious affection for this other guy and is just, he's on his side. It's like, Hey, look, I know we're on other side on opposite sides. <laughs> well, we all have to do our, our thing here, but, uh, but come on, you know? <laughs> um, and that relationship is so special to me. Uh, and it's, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen in movies. And I'm sure I've, we've seen that kind of thing before. I think the closest thing I can come to is near the end of bridge on the river Kwai when, mm. uh, Colonel Saito and Colonel Nicholson, but they've been through a lot of bad stuff yeah. to get there. Yeah. Um, and even then it's arguable whether they're actually friends. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this, they're basically friends immediately because the German captain's like, Oh, I, Oh, finally a friend. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> But then the film also ends with this really nice moment where the 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 other prisoners escape from the the prison and they're running and then the the German some German uh, soldiers are chasing them and they actually get over the border, which means the German soldiers are like, well, we can't shoot them now, but they're not angry about. It. In fact, they say something. They don't exactly say this, but it's basically like good for them. Yeah, and it's such and that's the note the movie ends on. And it's such a wonderful. I love the movie. Yeah. Do you like Grand Illusion? I do. I do. I, I. I don't think I've seen a genre horror movie that I dislike. I think I've only seen two. I think I've only seen really? that and Rules of the Game. Rules of the Game is great. There's that whole trilogy he has. Um. That's got like French Can Can and uh, the Golden Coach and stuff. French Can Can is really good, actually. That's. Uh, um. Okay. One I'd recommend. And then there's another one where uh, I think it's called Bodu saved from drowning. Okay. Where a, a rich aristocratic guy, uh, <laughs> goes to what he thinks, uh, kind of magnanimously help this poor person, um, who was drowning in the river. And then turns out the poor person just, this guy is like loud and bombastic and kind of like takes over his home and just hmm. sort of imposes himself in kind of a funny way. Uh, so that's a pretty, that's it's enjoyable like the movie comedy. house guest. <laughs> exactly. Sinbad. Yeah. Well, Sinbad's in it too. Oh wow, yeah. man, that guy, <laughs> what a range. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I enjoy Renoir a lot. So, um, I, it's been a while since I've seen this one and it's one I would like to see again, but I do remember those two performances, especially Eric von Sturheim and Jean Gabin is one I've always liked too. And, uh, who I think also was in French can, can come to think of it and rules of the game. But, uh, 
there's, yeah, I wonder if, because if this movie was made in 1937, I wonder if he's examining a little bit of a different attitude towards your enemy in battle, because I feel like that kind of attitude was not the same as in World War II. Fun fact, uh, Jean Renoir would later go on to record, uh, record's not the right word, but to tape or film or whatever you want to say, uh, a new introduction to the film hmm. for when it would be playing after World War II. Really? In which he provides some much needed context. Huh. In which he says, this film was made about World War I and it was made before World War II, before we knew just how monstrous the Nazis could be. Right. Uh, and yeah, and actually on the uh, Criterion uh, DVD that I have, you can watch it with that intro. That's interesting. Uh, which is, yeah. So like, so he definitely, it's something I find interesting that he he acknowledges that this, that the ideas that he's putting out there, the idea that that your enemy is not, a, is not, your monster simply because is not a monster simply because he's your enemy. Uh, that that is a thing that he, he doesn't just believe that, uh, as a blanket idea. Once he saw just the atrocities of the Nazis. And while I'm sure he would be quick to say like, well, obviously this doesn't extend to the troops, you know, Mm -hmm. but maybe it does, who knows? Um, and so, yeah, he was willing to adapt his own, his own uh he didn't change the movie but he just said like it's important you guys see this in historical context yeah and it's because like when you think about it world war one was in a lot of ways still very similar to to a lot of the older wars that had happened in it was still like a gentleman's war yeah it was a gentleman's war and it was about borders that a lot of the people fighting really didn't care about at all and it kind of didn't affect them very much on a day-to-day basis who who would like at the end of the war things were kind of the same you know it didn't matter that much um whereas with world war ii there was such a different uh such a different i guess moral uh moral question at stake because of the way that the, the Nazis were, you know, obviously the, the Holocaust. Yeah. Plus, uh, sort of their attitude of destroying the cultures that they yeah would overtake. Yeah. It's almost like world war one people came away from it saying like, man, that was, that was a huge war and mm-hmm. that was horrible but it was just a bigger version of the wars we already know yeah. only when like when they saw the holocaust that's when like this is something different this yeah. is uh th- we are now dealing with an e- with evil act genuinely evil activity yeah that and, kills people for no reason at all right and a lot of them didn't know that going into it too like i think that's why there were so many on like the vichy france side yeah. because they they didn't really know that things were as bad as they were. And they were like, this is just another one of those wars. It's about borders. We don't really care about this. We're not fighting other people's wars. And, um, yeah, not realizing that it was something different. So that's interesting that he would come back and say like, yeah, now that we know what was going on with world war two, now that we have these, I'm sure very, uh, uh, sensitive, uh, pain, that came yeah. from p- p- sensitive, painful attitudes towards Germany. Yeah. Um, it'd be hard to watch a movie and just, especially in France and just be like, yeah, these, uh, these guys aren't that bad. And it, you know, it actually reminds me to actually draw another uh, parallel with uh, bridge of spies. 
Um, so there is a, a conservative commentator that I that I uh, listened to and actually had coffee with recently. And I was listening to his podcast and he was talking about watching Bridge of Spies and said that there are a lot of things he really liked about it, but that he saw it as uh, a metaphor for um, not necessarily the war on terror, but our attitude towards our current enemy and our current enemy would would be those in like radical Islam, you know, like people, not obviously not uh, just Muslims in general, but like terrorists, yeah, you know, and that uh, that the film basically like makes apologies or is is an apologist for um, for these other cultures that we are so eager to, for lack of a better term, demonize. That's like, well, no, they're just hey, they're just defending their territory just as you are, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, now, and he says that that is obviously, it's not, it's not a one-to-one comparison. Uh, I got, I didn't, so in that same way, um, his view is like, well, no, 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 you, if you're, you can't use this as a stand-in for these people that do these monstrous things like, you know, will blow up, uh, you know, an urban area where there's no military and it's, it's purely civilians, uh, in the same way that I think. Uh, Jean Renoir would then say about his own film, say, hang on, you can't apply this towards this real life group mm. uh, of people. And so uh, the issue is that I, I don't think I necessarily at no point did I get that vibe from Bridge of Spies. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did you at all? I mean, only in the sense that maybe during some of the trial, there's a little bit of an idea that, like the communists aren't that bad. Sure. But I think that's not the movie's ultimate right. view. Um yeah, so I, I don't feel like that's the message of the movie. Yeah, and yeah, I, I, I don't think I, I agree with this with this commentator um, because I think the film actually, Bridge of Spies, I think is actually so much about, at its core, American ideals, which is the individual above all, uh, more so than the country they represent, more so than uh, general ideologies. It's about who this person is uh, and seeing each person for their their beliefs but the beliefs that they personally have and the the things that they believe uh, that they think uh the things that they feel the experiences they've had uh their attitudes about things like literally seeing a person as only themselves and i feel like that's a very american idea mm. and one and certainly it's compare that to you know soviet russia where it is not about the individual at no. all um to me that was that's what the film is mostly about. Um, and so, yeah, it's so interesting that he had put that out there cause I did not see it that way really at all. Um, so to go back to, to grand illusion. Yeah. So <clears throat> one of the things that I just, that I love about it and I'm sure people can figure it out already is this idea that, uh, just because these two people are on different sides, that doesn't mean that they have to see each other as their enemy. It's like officially you're my enemy, but that doesn't mean I have to treat you in a, in a, in a bad way, you know, it's one of the things that I think is interesting is that the the I keep saying Colonel because I'm thinking Bridget on the Requi, um, that this mm. captain of the of the prison camp, it's almost like he realized like, well, look, you've already been caught, you know, you're already in prison. There's nothing more you can do. You can escape, I guess, but there's that's basically it. Uh, and then when you escape, then I have to bring you back, and then we start all over again. Uh, but that's that's you just doing what you have to do, and me doing what I have to do. But now that you're here. 
you know, who cares, you know? And, and I don't know, it's just such a neat, such a neat viewpoint that I hadn't seen before, as I said. And, and of course, Eric von Stroheim, some of it is just also the, 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 the look of his character that he has kind of this brace <laughs> on his back and neck, uh, that just makes him look so, it makes him look evil. It makes him look like a super villain. And it actually is like the nicest guy in the film. Yeah. Um, to the point that at, yeah, maybe I'll spoil this. No, I'm not going to. There's a thing at the end where somebody winds up dying by accident and he makes it clear. This was not my intention at all. I'm so sorry. Um, so, so I want to talk a little bit about, um, about, uh, loving your enemy which is what we're which is what we're talking about and your enemy now we're we're in these movies we're talking about war but your enemy can literally be anything it can be the person that you disagree with the person that is very mean to you uh it could be in my just a person you're having an argument with absolutely you know i view you as my enemy most of the time even when we're not having an argument well i'm usually trying to kill you in some kind of sneaky way yeah, like you you keep slipping poison into my Propel Zero grape. Little do you know that it's already kind of poisonous, and I, I'm immune to it now. I'm I'm like the Cato to your uh, to your Inspector Clouseau. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I, it keeps me on my toes, you know. So that way, you know, when uh, when the internet atheists come after me, uh, I know what to expect. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. There's very much this attitude, uh, whether it be individ- like you're you're literally arguing with somebody or just the general idea of this other this group of people that doesn't agree with me uh they they are just inherently bad and i can't treat them in a positive way at all and it's interesting i didn't intend on uh talking about this movie as a function of politics but we uh, we happen to be in the middle of a of at the beginning of primary season and you will hear a lot about you know the republicans saying things about democrats democrats saying things about republicans now obviously i I side more with one of them than the other, but that doesn't mean that the other side is just purely evil and they're trying yeah. to accomplish evil things. Um, so there, the thing about the, the concept of loving your enemy uh, is that there is, there's a lot of verses about it. Uh, as it turns out, it's a thing that Jesus felt very strongly about, uh, as did Paul. So we're going to just fly through some of these verses. Uh, so we're going to go with, I'll do Luke and then you do Romans All right. and I'll do Matthew. Okay. Uh, so Luke 6 verses 27 through 33. This is Jesus talking. So pay attention. Uh, <laughs> These letters are in red. Exactly. Uh, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. So that is uh, Luke six twenty-seven through thirty-three. Romans, take us away. This is not in red letters, so feel free no, to you tune can this you out. can zone out. Go go grab a drink or something. Absolutely. Now. Uh, no, this is Romans three twenty-three. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That is more than just 323. Sorry, I forgot to add uh, yeah, I was gonna uh, say. 21 and 22 there. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. Red letters, everybody. So, you know... 
Hope I you got that I root beer. Attention. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, to me, there is nothing more inherently childish than somebody uh, drinking root beer. <laughs> I have no idea why. I have no idea yeah. why. Um, so, uh, okay. Uh, you have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Uh, do, do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And then lastly, we will go with Matthew 7, 3. And this might actually be more than 7, 3, but go, go to it. I'll throw that to you. All right. Uh, this is Jesus again. Ooh. I've heard of him. <laughs> All the hits. Uh, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay. So when we look at all these verses together, uh, you know, it's it's talking about what, what, what we're talking about, which is, you know, the people that are your enemy, whatever that might mean in, in that particular moment, uh, you are supposed to love them. You are supposed to accommodate them. You're supposed to pray for them. Uh, you're supposed to recognize that God's grace extends to them just as it does to you, whether they accept it or not in that moment. Um, and just and then also the reason I incorporated like the plank and speck is that when you look at your enemy or even a friend, it's very easy to see where they are wrong. But the whole idea about I feel like the plank and speck thing is used against people a lot, often yeah. as a way of saying, don't judge me. Yeah. Uh, but what it ultimately means, it's it's a thing that you the one should apply to oneself uh, and never use against somebody else uh, as mm -hmm. a way of uh, of avoiding accountability. Um, and it's basically this idea of examine yourself before you go at, before you go to somebody to say, hey, I think maybe you're doing something wrong or, hey, I think your attitude is wrong or whatever it is. Uh, it's first looking at yourself and saying, like, well, hang on a minute. Now, where am I? You know, I'm not exactly blameless either. And so, you know, in the case of something like A Bridge of Spies, I think it's helpful. One of the things that I like about the movie is that while there is no doubt that Soviet that the Soviet Union is worse than the United States, and the, I think the film definitely takes that attitude. Um, when we look at the court case and we see that there are people that are that are theoretically in favor of due process uh, and and uh, living out American ideals, when it when you know when the rubber hits the road, uh, they're saying like, "Well, yes, that's more for show," and that doesn't make them look very good either. Mm -hmm. And so. I think the film says we are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. This country over here and the broad in the broad sense may be worse, but we are not perfect. And it helps and it, it helps to realize that when approaching this other country. And I think Tom Hanks's mm -hmm. character who witnesses sort of the, I would say intellectual corruption on our side. I think it helps him when approaching uh, the other side and realize like, well, Hey, I can't come from a place of inherent superiority or at mm -hmm. least absolute superiority. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then I do, I have a couple of, uh, a couple of quotes here, one from Martin Luther King, one from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, both of whom dealt with, uh, in their own way, uh, tremendous evil. 
And so uh, we'll go with I'll I'll do Martin Luther King. You do Dietrich bon, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Okay. okay. Do I have to do it in a German accent? Yes. Okay. I'm oh, you do can it. do your uh, do it as uh, Werner Herzog. <laughs> oh no, thank you. <laughs> It's like, did Dietrich Bonhoeffer kill everybody? <laughs> um, no, you can just use your your uh, your Wesley accent <laughs> as uh, something Nietzscheman. Mm-hmm. Is that it? David Nietzscheman. David Nietzscheman. Yeah, yeah. Oh, David Nietzscheman. You have to do it like that. You have to do it basically like Sprockets. <laughs> <laughs> that was the Taiwan Sprockets when we dance. Okay, so uh, Martin Luther King said this. Uh, now there is a final reason I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. Just keep being friendly to that person. Just keep loving them. And they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with guilt feelings. And sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period, but just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love. You see, it is redemptive. And that is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. But what does Dietrich Bonhoeffer have to say? Well, he disagrees. Mm. And uh, no. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause he had come, to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. Thick of foes. That's what the film should have been called. Uh, Not yeah. Bridge of Spies. Thick of foes. Um, Missed opportunity. Yeah. Uh, Susan, get me Steven Spielberg. <laughs> right away, Mr. Smith. <laughs> it's late at night. <laughs> uh, so anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. That was very stupid. Um, <laughs> Theater of the mind. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> I'm sorry. I find this much funnier than it is. <laughs> so we're looking at, I, I love that quote from, from Martin Luther King, because the idea of love being in, being inherently redemptive, even if people are, are resistant to it. And even if they respond with hate immediately, uh, I mean, Jesus was perpetually responding to hatred with love and people were not happy about it at first, but eventually, you know, when somebody is loved, unconditionally or as as unconditionally as we can Mm -hmm. uh i do genuinely believe that there that as resistant as it is because because you're going against what people naturally assume which is this person is my enemy i hate them they hate me oh wait they're not hating me but well what does that mean for me what do i have to do now and uh but I do think that eventually, and eventually could mean decades from now. I mean, let's not forget that both Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King <laughs> were <killed>. murdered. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but it's also worth noting that uh, I was thinking about Malcolm X uh, the other day because somebody had uh, gotten an email about uh, what Malcolm X represented. And, um, you know, and his attitude about, you know, civil rights was much more militaristic, much more aggressive. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting that he ended the same way that Martin Luther King did. Mm-hmm. And while uh, many people would say that it's important to have somebody to stand for you, for their their rights and the rights of others, there's nothing inherently redemptive about just saying, you're doing wrong to me and I'm going to 
I'm going to get what I want or what I need or what I deserve by any means necessary. There's something very different than that to uh, something very different to that than you'll give me what I want eventually. I know that justice will win out, even if it's not in my lifetime. And in the meantime, I love you no matter what you do to me. Um, I don't know. It's uh, and maybe people uh, disagree with me. I know that Spike Lee would say that it needs to be a combination of the two, as we see at the end of uh, "Do the Right Thing." But, mm-hmm. but yeah. Uh, so I'm trying to think in terms of like, so who would? You, okay, this is a weird question to throw at you. Okay. Or anybody, because I didn't prepare you for it. Okay. Um, who would you say, and you don't have to give names or anything, but you can speak in the broad terms, you can speak in specific terms. Who would you say your enemies are? Hmm. This was not, this this question, by the way, was not planned. I don't know necessarily what my answer would be. Yeah. And listener, feel free to think of your own answer as well. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I feel like in my personal life, I don't know that I have people I could describe as enemies. Hmm. Well, I can think of one. Is it you? It's me. Oh, okay. Okay, you. Blam. <laughs> <laughs> that was him punching me. Oh no! That see, that was that was a gunshot. That was oh, the oh, I'm mind. dead. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, uh, like Orson Welles, uh, the theater on the air. Uh, <laughs> the, and now I'm just thinking of like a funny moment in Midsummer Night's Dream where uh, a character is playing, is acting in a play mm-hmm. and has to keep talking. He, he has to talk so much that even when he's dead, he's talking about like, now I'm dead. <laughs> now he like goes on this whole big thing. That's about right. It and won't shut up. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think if I were to think of people that I think of as enemies, it's generally people who uh, either like politicians that I don't agree with or people who are, uh, you know, militant opponents of religion or something like that. And most of them, not people that I know, but uh, I think those are the people that I think of as on the other side, you know, they're the others. They're the, the people who are against me. Yeah, uh, I'd say that's probably the same for me. Uh, in my capacity as a uh, podcaster, I have uh, I have gotten to know some of them, mm-hmm. and that is uh, not always a pleasant thing, um, <laughs> especially when it's when it's frustrating. Literally, like this situation of trying to love somebody else, trying to at the very least find common ground between you and this other person. It's frustrating to me when the person is not receptive to that, and then they come at you with hostility and condescension and dismissal and all of these things that make you feel so worthless. So it's almost subhuman. If yeah. it, that may sound a little bit melodramatic, but you know what I mean? Literally like, Oh wow, this person so thinks they think I am that my views are so stupid that I'm not even worthy of res- of basic human respect. Mm-hmm. It is like, that is tough. That is tough yeah. stuff. And I've had stuff emailed to me. I've had podcasts, done about the about me and mm-hmm. about the show and it is 
rough. I yeah. mean, it, it is definitely, I mean, it's everybody agrees. Everybody that knows agrees that that is definitely what kicked off my, de- what like sparked my depression because mm. I was angry all the time. And then it turned inward as the, and they say depression is anger turned inward. Uh, and it just, and it like, I, I wasn't sleeping. Mm. I wasn't eating. And cause I just felt that everybody just hated me and that kind of thing. Like it really had an impact on me. Mm. Um, and it was, it's very difficult to love those people. And then that, that I think is the hardest thing about being Christ-like in that, in that, uh, area, because it's always nice to, for us to think, well, if we're all doing that to each other, then it'll all be okay. Like, even though we're enemies, we can still yeah. get along if we're all being respectful and loving towards each other. But, um, Jesus is calling us to do that even when they slap us in the face, you know, like that's, and that's the harder thing when you extend that uh, respect or love or just vulnerability to people that you know are opposing you. And instead of responding in kind, they take advantage of that. And that's, I mean, that unfortunately is something that people do. And I think something that I'm sure everyone listening has uh, experienced at one point or another. I know that both of us have. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, but that's quite that's literally what, Jesus, what, what happened to Jesus, yeah. you know, like it's in some cases, you know, like in the case of, you know, like the centurion and stuff mm-hmm. who is predisposed to being against Jesus, but then sees Jesus loving him and then responds with love and acceptance. Um, that's one side of it. But then the other side is, uh, oh, uh, he's, uh, killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. So that's the thing, like so many of us, I think we, we like this idea, like I think you're absolutely right. We like this idea and whether we acknowledge it or not, I think there is the, an assumption, it's like, well, surely everybody's on board with this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody can agree that it's important to love your enemies. And then when you actually find that that is not the case and we're actually put more directly in the position of Jesus and, you know, we don't necessarily have to fear for our lives or anything, mm-hmm. but we are singled out and either ridiculed or hated um when we're actually put in the same position as jesus that's when it's just like what hang on a second this is uh (laughs) this is some bs man yeah uh this is not what i signed up for and as it happens it is exactly what you signed up for Mm -hmm. and that's when it's difficult and it's and it's not going to be easy and you will fail at it obviously there i mean i have there's no question that i have hated people yeah uh that have hated me Mm -hmm. um and it's 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 a very ugly feeling, but also there are times when it's a very exhilarating feeling to hate yeah. somebody. Um, but we need to fight against that, and right. you know, so it's a thing. That's why, and this is the thing that we talk about. We've talked about a lot on the show. Is that like step one is pray for that person. Yeah, pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, because when you're praying for somebody, it's hard to not want good for them. Yeah, even if you're praying like. Lord, please help them to to see the error of their ways. Even in that view, you're you're separating them from their ways. Yeah, that they are just inherently wrong. Yeah, they're inherently evil. They will never be good. It's no help them to recognize where they are wrong and then become who they're meant to be, right. which is right, whatever that might be. And you have you have to, and I think we've said this on the show before, but you have to in that moment at least make an effort to see them as God sees them. Yeah. Um, and so I think, and I think actually we'll, we'll end on that note cause we've been going for, for a while. Um, and yeah, and I think that's, I, I, bridge of spies is not a perfect movie. Grand illusion is not a perfect movie, but it's closer, hmm. much closer. Um, 
but I think Bridge of Spies, from a thematic standpoint, I think does of is is very thorough, and does a really good job of just showing the other side and showing that you can disagree with the other side. You can disagree with your enemies. You can still see them as your enemy uh, in maybe like an ideological sense or something like that. But that doesn't mean you have to hate them and it doesn't mean you have to treat them with respect. Uh, and I think even realizing even the people that like, that's the thing, the character of Rudolph Abel is also just an, just a good guy. It's very easy to be on his side. Yeah. But imagine if he was actually very antagonistic. Yeah. And Tom Hanks still has to do what he does. It'd be harder. It, you know, it'd be a much more, I think, a much more dynamic movie if that were the case. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, it'd be a lot harder to root for what Tom Hanks is doing. But that is what we are called to do is even when people are being and even when our enemies are being antagonistic to us as enemies are wont to do, mm -hmm. um, we are still required to extend to them every civility that we would that we wish they were at that moment extending to us. So, OK, we will leave it there. Um, listeners, if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them on the uh, post at, at, for this episode at more than one lesson.com. You can email me Tyler more than one lesson.com or Josh, Josh at more than one lesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh long at the Josh long. You can also like us on Facebook. Uh, and I think that is about it. Thank you everybody for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye.